Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick and I'm your host for today's program. When is a pirate not a pirate? That's the question posed in a November 2013 article in the LA Times about the arrest and trial of Ali Muhammad Ali, an accused Somali pirate. Mr. Ali, as he's known, was recruited by Somali pirates to negotiate the payment of a ransom and the release of hostages when the cargo vessel CEC Future was hijacked in the Gulf of Aden in 2008. After successfully serving as a mediator, Mr. Ali was lured into the U.S. by U.S. authorities with a bogus invitation to attend an education conference and arrested and detained for 30 months leading up to his 2013 trial. What makes the case even more fascinating is that Mr. Ali, a Muslim, was represented pro bono by Matt Peed from Clinton, Brooke, and Peed, a Christian attorney living in Falls Church, Virginia. Matt joins us to talk about the case and share insights he gained in the process. Matt, welcome to Grace and 30. Thank you, glad to be here. So, when you first told me this story, when I met you on the deck uh, out of the cookout last summer, I thought a Christian lawyer representing an accused Muslim Somali pirate pro bono I thought you couldn't write this kind of stuff. It's, it's real life. When did you first learn about uh, Mr. Ali and how did you come to represent him? Well, um, Mr. Ali had a friend. Uh, he lived in, who lived in Washington, D.C. who was called before the grand jury uh, investigating this case. And um, that friend reached out to a community group uh, that represents Arab Americans and they referred him to my partner because he had done a lot of pro bono work um, representing Arab Americans facing discrimination. Um, and so once, once he reached out to that group and they appointed him to my partner, my partner uh, passed the case along to me. So um, the details of the hijacking, can you give us just a little bit of background on what happened and uh, sort of set the stage? Well, this was during the heyday of Somali piracy. Almost on a daily basis, ships were being taken hostage by groups um, passing through the Gulf of Aden. Um, this was a Danish ship called the CEC Future. It had a mostly Russian crew, and um, the crew travels all around the world, and, and this was um, the part of their leg that was going through the Gulf of Aden by Somalia. So uh, these, just there's organized criminal gangs that would just send crews out on skiff boats, chase down these ships, and attack them. Now, when the hijacking occurred, is that about the time that the movie Captain Phillips came out, or was that during the trial? No, the movie came out right before trial. You know, one of the things we had to ask jurors if they had seen Captain Phillips. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty uh, moving movie. I mean, the end of it, I, it, it really affected me what he went through uh, during that. And when I read the story about the, the actual hijacking, uh, they actually fired a propelled grenade at, at the uh, ship at one point. Right. When they first started feeling like they were in an attack, the, the captain ordered evasive maneuvers, um, which, as you can imagine, a giant ship trying to evade a, a tiny speedboat won't get very far, but that, that's what they tried first. And as soon as a grenade was shot over the bow as a warning by the pirates, the captain knew he had to stop had, the ship and had comply. Had to surrender, yeah. Um, so what were the charges that were actually brought against Mr. Mr. Ali? Well, Mr. Ali... Um, to give you some more further background, he was not with the pirate gang that went out to attack this ship. Um, the pirates captured this ship and they brought it to a port called Ail, which is um, a coastal city on the coast of Somalia. Uh, Mr. Ali boarded the ship in Ail 
and served as a translator between the pirates and the company that owned the ship. So uh, the ship was held for 70 days and he lived on the boat for 70 days um, during this process. He was arrested later, um, and we can get into the details of how he was arrested, but he, he was charged with piracy. They charged him, all he did was translate, but they charged him as an aider and a better of the piracy itself. And the reason this is significant is piracy has a mandatory life sentence uh, with no possibility of parole. Um, so the government, and it's a, it's a statute that's hundreds of years old. It was passed by the first Congress um, you know, that back during a time when piracy was a, a big problem for ships going around the world. And uh, initially had a mandatory death sentence, and then it was, that was changed in the 1800s to mandatory life in prison. Um, but it's always been considered one of the most serious crimes under the criminal code. He was charged with piracy, and he was charged with hostage taking, which um, is a more, much more recent statute that was put in place after the convention uh, against hostage taking. Um, during the 80s. So those are the two principal charges, hostage-taking and piracy. And they were essentially the same thing because if you, if you commit a hostage-taking on the high seas, that is an act of piracy. So this occurred overseas in the Gulf of Aden, and it was mostly a Russian crew. And I'm trying to understand the United States' involvement in this. Um, it, was there any dispute why they were prosecuting him and not somebody else? or? That became a big issue in pretrial motions. Uh, there was absolutely no connection between this event and the United States. Um, the ship was a, uh, a Danish ship uh, with, I believe, a Bahamian flag, um, a Russian crew, and Somali uh, attackers. So there was, there was no connection to the United States. What I learned later uh, during the case is that one of the reasons that uh, the U.S. took an interest is that Mr. Ali, he had lived in the United States for 25 years before going back to Somalia in 2007. And while he was on the ship, he called some friends from the ship uh, who were in D.C. He actually lived in D the D.C. area for two years. So he had made some friends in the Somali community. One of them ran a restaurant where a lot of Somali uh, citizens hung out. And he, he called that restaurant from the ship just to say hello. And so the, the FBI had call records from the ship to a 202 number in DC. And that, that sparked their interest that maybe there was some kind of um, pirate conspiracy operating out of Washington, DC. Okay. Um, but other than that hunch they had, there was no connection. And so we filed pretrial motions arguing that um, there basically wasn't jurisdiction in the United States to prosecute the hostage taking charges because there was no connection whatsoever to the United States. Yeah, I, I found it fascinating that you know one of some an attorney, a professor, um, reviewed the case, and he said, "quote unquote, not many alleged Somali pirates are apprehended when they come to the U.S. for a conference of educators." And it's it, the, the U.S. seemed to put a lot of effort into going after this particular person, who was a mediator, whereas the actual pirates, you know, they they weren't gone after they getting him to come to the United States, clearly he didn't think he had done something wrong, and right. it seems very rare. Right, they, they lured him to the United States using a ruse. Um, he had become some sort of an education minister, kind of education type secretary in Somalia. And so the United States pretended to host an education conference and invited him to speak at it with the goal of helping the children of Somalia. And so that was the pretext that they used to bring him here. And obviously, you don't catch many pirates or criminals for that matter by, by luring them with promises to help 
to educate children. Um, I think that they did that because at the time, um, the then Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration had put a priority on catching higher level pirates. They're, they were tired of the only people they could catch in the whole piracy problem were people who were attacking the ships and they were viewed as the more desperate bottom of the wrong people. So understandably they had a policy they wanted to catch real um, ringleaders, the leaders of these criminal gangs, but they had no willingness to, to invade Somalia and catch them. And so I think Mr. Ali represented really low-hanging fruit, someone they could claim was a higher up in an organization when in fact he was nothing of the sort and was willing to fly to America um, basically to walk into an arrest. Now there was a lot more attention as well to these sort of uh, hijackings. There were a couple couples that were hijacked in a, in a sort of a luxury yacht and killed, weren't they, by some Somali pirates around that time? Or when did that happen? At the, yeah, around the same time there was an attack on um, an American couple and uh, the, the United States military tried to intervene and, and um, in that in that uh, episode, the, the couple was killed. Um, and so I think there was finger pointing between the pirates and the United States as to what exactly went down. Typically, pirates try not to harm their the people because they view them as their, you know, their merchandise, unfortunately. Um, so that was a very unfortunate episode that I think put a lot of pressure on, more pressure on the counter-piracy um, policymakers in the United States to take action. So who exactly is Mr. Ali, I mean, I, I read different, I read some of the prosecuting attorney's statements. Um, one of the persons said, you know, Mr. Ali didn't carry a gun, but his role in helping negotiate and secure a ransom made him the most important gun on board. And then the flip side, others described him as someone always willing to help out the government officials. He even volunteered after 9-11, he was in the United States, he, he volunteered to offer his uh, Somali and Arabic language skills to help the uh, Department of Homeland Security following those attacks. None of us are perfect, but, but you know, who is he? How did, when you got to know him, what kind of a person was he, and, and how did you feel about representing him? Uh, he, he's one of the most fascinating people I've ever met in my, in my life, certainly in my career, um, and it was an honor to represent him. He's someone who his whole life wanted, had, had his highest goal to be an American citizen. He came to this country when he was 19, and his whole family um, also immigrated from Somalia to Canada and became Canadian citizens. and he. Uh, they invited him up to live with them, and, and he said, "No, I like the vibrancy of New York City." Mm -hmm. um, it just—he was—he's a guy who just loves action and loves to be around different kinds of people. Loves—he's fascinated by people, and um, always is trying to understand people, and loved America. So he spent a quarter century in this country, always trying to help the country and and become a citizen of the country. Um, so, you know, that that statement by the prosecutor that that his gun. I remember her. She saying his gun was his mouth. Um, you know, he didn't hold a gun, but his gun was his mouth. But his, as I said in the, in the trial, his his mouth was the key to freedom for these hostages. Um, it's truly really a matter of perspective. And what I, what impressed me was his willingness to go into the lion's den of a pirate ship. Um, at the time, he was the he was a single dad for his four four year old son, and he left his son to go on this ship and to try to understand the pirates, try to understand the piracy problem from their perspective in order to find a solution, in order to combat the problem. You know, he, he gathered intelligence on that ship that actually led to the first 
prosecution after the fact ever of a pirate, at least in the modern era. He worked with the ship owners to help bring about this prosecution. And, and, and was that done in Somaliland or was that somewhere else? It was done in America. Uh, one of the pirates who attacked this ship, CC Future, later attacked a U.S. naval ship thinking it was a, a commercial ship. Wow. And, you know, they got quickly blown out of the water. That's a, that's a big mistake. <laughs> big mistake. So the, the Americans, uh, Navy, the American Navy went and gathered those pirates and brought them, brought them back to America for prosecution for attacking that ship and, it, and then learned that one of those pirates had attacked the CC Future. And so Ali helped identify that individual and helped basically prosecute someone who then later testified at his own trial against him, um, testifying for the government. Uh, that's, that's fascinating because I haven't read that anywhere. None of the articles that covered this uh, you know, talk about that um, prosecution that occurred. We're going to take a quick break. Just remind people we're talking to Matt Peed, a local attorney who defended an accused Somali pirate against charges of piracy and hostage taking uh, that were made by the U.S. government. So I want to pick up on that again, uh, that he helped pro prosecute somebody or, or lead that person to a uh, prosecution. When did that happen? Was that in 2015 or 16? Or well, the trial was in 2013. Um, the trial of Mr. Ali. Of Mr. Ali. And Mr. Ali was arrested in April 2011. Shortly before, it was, it was the months, a few months before his arrest, uh, sort of the fall of 2010, when he was helping the, the owner of the ship and it got a man named Per Gulistrup. He was the CEO of the company that owned the CSC Future. He was helping him in many ways, but one of them was helping identify any potential names or pictures of the pirates that he had seen while he was on the ship translating. Um, and he got, he was corresponding almost on a daily basis with the CEO, um, and the CEO had, was expressing his thanks for helping, for Ali's help in getting a prosecution of one of the pirates who attacked his ship. Um, so it was a very friendly relationship and successful relationship in terms of a prosecution. Um, and, you know, Ali didn't know later that the U.S. would begin to target him. Um, and, I, and I know that that put the owner in a very, a very bad situation because as a ship owner, you need the United States to, to, to be supportive of counter-piracy efforts. Um, and so when the U.S. began to target Mr. Ali, this person who had been working with the CEO in counter-piracy measures after this hijacking, you know, he was in a sort of a tight spot, and he told me that. And he actually provided letters in support of Ali, and at the same time tried to not um, anger the United States, who was prosecuting Mr. Ali. And, and so he was sort of a witness for both sides at the trial. Yeah, it's fascinating. I listened to some of the recordings of the conversations between Mr. Ali and the CEO, and it's, it's kind of intense uh, what was going on. Give us the verdict. What exactly happened in the end of this trial? Um, it was a very, um, it, it, the, the jury came back right away with a not guilty verdict on piracy. Um, and, you know, like you can imagine the stress of that moment when Mr. Ali was waiting to hear that verdict. Um, then we entered a period of a strange, uh, I think it was almost two weeks of deliberations where the jury was deliberating on the other charge of hostage taking. And uh, as we had asked for different jury instructions because we thought they were confusing. They were really the same crime. As I said, if you take someone hostage on the high seas, you've committed piracy. And so by acquitting Ali of piracy, they essentially acquitted him as well of hostage taking. But I think they were a little bit confused as to what the requirements were for hostage taking. And we waited for two weeks. 
coming to court every day with the government sort of waiting and they finally stated they were hung on hostage taking and the government said they wanted to retry him on those counts they couldn't retry him on the piracy counts um, and you know I, I started doing a little research and, and there's a recent Supreme Court case that said if, if the jury acquits someone of a crime it doesn't matter if they hang on other charges the government can't retry him for anything having to do with if, if for anything it's the same crime as that crime and that was the situation here so I filed a motion um, saying that the case needs to be dismissed because the jury has already acquitted him of piracy and that that essential acquittal dealt with all the facts of the matter they had the jury told us that we talked to the jury afterwards and everyone was sure that Mr. Ali did not intend for these people to be taken hostage did not want them to be taken hostage so at that point no more charges against him I, I read somewhere that he was kind of moved around a little bit in detention is that true or was he immediately released he was not he was not released um, and he had already spent 30 months uh, locked up in the US leading up to the trial he spent an enormous amount of time pre-trial detention and that was one of the major fights of the trial uh, we filed motions to get him released from pre-trial release and actually were successful uh, and the government appealed and the DC Circuit put him back in jail uh, he had about 10 days where he was on house detention living with an uncle here and uh, you know, those were very sweet 10 days but he was put back in jail by the DC Circuit pending trial even though um, the trial was going to be over a year away because we had actually had all the charges dismissed in pretrial motions and the DC Circuit reinstated the charges and for that period while those charges were on appeal he had no charges pending against him he had a, a record of helping hostages and, and uh, no prior criminal convictions whatsoever but he was still kept in jail so we were finally when we got to trial they had been 30 months at that point and um, the, the trial took so long because of the deliberations about the confusing hostage taking count and then once they hung on that I filed my motion to dismiss all the charges the government insisted the motion had no merit and they were going to respond so the trial court still didn't release him finally on the day the government had to respond to my motion which was actually the day my daughter was born oh wow they called me while I was in the hospital and said Matt your motions brought us to our knees we're gonna we're gonna um, drop the charges so that uh, ended the case and, he, and he, he really should have walked out of jail right then but there had been a detainer placed on him because he was not a citizen mm -hmm. so even though the United States brought him here voluntarily and then held him for 30 months he didn't have the right to be here and so they brought him immediately into immigration detention out of Virginia jail and, and how long did that last so that that was another year he spent in jail trying to get asylum um, and I uh, he was the first criminal case I ever had and he became the first immigration case I ever had because I, I didn't want to walk away from him and try to get him asylum um, and the reason we were applying for asylum is that by bringing having a public trial the United States government forced Mr. Ali to put on the public record all the efforts he had made fighting piracy um, sort of betraying the people on the ship the pirates on the ship um, and we were really worried that if he got shipped back to Somalia he's gonna have a target on his back yeah so he did go back he didn't get asylum correct right the judge immigration judge rejected his asylum bid on really grounds that we could have challenged but at that point after spending four years in jail he had no energy left to stay in jail for another appeal um, and uh, and that's the situation he would have had to wait in jail for this to play out he would have had to wait in a untold number of months or years waiting for an appeal to the uh, circuit court of that immigration ruling
So he returned home in 2014? I believe it was 2014. Okay, so he's been there since, and, and there was a concern about him, his safety when he got back, but he's okay right now, correct? He's yeah, correct. I've been in communication with him, and so far he's managed to stay safe. And um, he's from a, the western part of Somalia, which is called Somaliland, and it's a semi-independent, um, democratic uh, province that's that's trying to take a path toward its own, having its own country. And so it has its own government, and within that government, that's the government he had served with when at the time when he was arrested. You know, he has connections and is um, you know attempting to rebuild his life there. So shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, we talked on the phone, we talked at the cookout. You know, I noticed you, you went to Harvard and got a Harvard degree. Everybody, people like me see that and we're like, wow, that's really impressive. You went to Duke, got your law degree, correct? Right. And, and you've, I'm sure you had some impressive bullet points in your resume after graduating, but now you're working with this small firm and you're doing pro bono work like this, um, which is really impressive. And, and I guess the question is, is this sort of a calling or a higher purpose for you? I mean, is this something that you felt drawn to do? You, you could be working with a big firm right now making quite a bit of money, but you've kind of joined this smaller firm and you're doing this kind of work. Why do you do this? You know, before I had this case, uh, it was hard to feel passionate about legal work. I want, went to law school because I wanted to, um, make, I always wanted my career to make a difference for God. and. Um, I, at first I thought, thought I wanted to be a doctor and I had studied medicine, uh, pre-med curriculum in college and sort of towards the end of my senior year I started to think, you know, doctors can help one-on-one -on -one patients but there are places around the world where there's not the rule of law and, and functioning economies and these societies are not producing doctors and so you have to, there are a lot of medical missionaries that go in but what if there was a way to work on the society level so that um, societies could be healed and produce you know their own doctors and so I started to think about rule of law issues and that sort of took me to law school but uh, sort of quickly you get into a lot of debt when you go to law school and and you get trained to be a lawyer not so much to be a broad policy maker um, so I but to pay off your debt <laughs> pay off your debt <laughs> so I kind of uh, I was kind of in a in a wilderness period when I when I had before I got this case where I wasn't sure how this legal training that I had was was really connect me to this kind of um, the, the desire I had to help advance the kingdom and, and help individuals and, and serve God. So um, I had, I had, it was not a big firm. It was incredible, you know, really long hours, a lot of stress. And my wife, um, she had had two babies in two years and um, she had taken a lot of time off the workforce and she was going back to work. And we, we tried doing two, two career families for or two full-time workers and that wasn't working. So, Actually, when I left a big law firm around 2010, I thought that I would sort of take time off and sort of assess my situation, should I even remain a lawyer? And that's when this case came in the door. And it really ignited a passion for me because the injustice of it was unbelievable to me. Every time I got more information from the government about how this person was helping fight piracy and they were still prosecuting to him, it just, just fired me up. And so I... At that time, I was watching my kids during the day and going to the jail at night to meet with Mr. Ali. I, I, it kind of became, um, it just became a mission, it became a passion. And I, I learned, and Mr. Ali would introduce me to other people that he met at jail who needed good, good representation. And I, I sort of got a love for uh, fighting for individuals, not for corporations, and seeing, um, you know, 
I think as all of us as citizens, we want we want we want bad guys put away, but but so often mistakes are made, um, and even when they aren't, even when a guy a defendant is guilty of something, often they're overcharged or they just need someone in their corner to get a, a fair punishment. And so, after this process of working three years for Mr. Ali, uh, it it sort of gave me a passion for other work, and and ever since then I've pretty, pretty much focused on individual criminal defense, um, fighting for people who. You know, really need a voice. We don't have a lot of time left. Do you have anything you'd like to share with the listeners, whether it's lessons you learned from this, a call to action? Um, what would you like to tell people? We've got about a, a minute. You know, one of the lessons would be uh, the need for us to get out of our comfort zone and meet, meet people who are different from us. Um, you know, Mr. Ali was a Muslim and a Somali, and I think that probably prejudiced the way the government was looking at some of these ambiguous communications. Whereas when I met with him and learned just what a, what a great guy he was, gregarious, a funny guy, a compassionate guy, uh, a faithful guy, um, you know, we really bonded over that. And, you know, I would tell him my church is praying for him, you know, and he would love that. And he would, he would tell me how he prays for my family. Yeah, you mentioned that he prayed for the prosecutor. Even, even the prosecutors uh, during the trial, he said, you know, I hope that they have a good life, you know, and I hope that they are... Are okay, you know, whatever happens to me, and it just blew me away because they are trying to put him in jail the rest of his life. Um, so, you know, that that really that really blessed me to get to know Mr. Ali, and I, t- I asked him when he goes back to Somalia when we lost an immigration case to try to advocate for Christians and and in the Christian Muslim relationship to you know be a voice for um, building dialogue and building connections, you know, in a place of the world where often um, extremist voices are the only ones that are heard. That's outstanding because we're, we're hearing a lot of that. We had our pastor on from Grace Community Church last week and he talked about stepping over the line, getting you know, pro- proximity is such a, such a key to get to know people that are different from you so that we can sort of tear down these walls that are dividing us now. So time is up, sorry to say. Um, thanks so much for joining us on Grace in 30. Uh, if listeners would like more information on Mr. Ali's case, we'll be posting it in the next 24 hours at the graceand30.com website along with a replay of the show which can also be found at WERA.FM. The show will also re-air on WERALP this Sunday at 8.30 a.m. This is Ed Mellick signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace. Grace.